This is the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore. We welcome Peter Betts back to the podcast. How you doing, Peter? Bob, I'm doing fine. I saw my makeup lady this morning, and I had her fix me all up so that when I got on the radio with you, I'd look good. Very good. Peter Betts writes a history column every other week for the Leader Herald newspaper in Gloversville, a former professor at Fulton Montgomery Community College and a former historian for Fulton County. And we're going to start off talking about um, a topic. It's funny to talk about timely topics in history, but uh, this is getting attention here, there and everywhere because the influenza epidemic, worldwide influenza epidemic, which killed many, many people, took place 100 years ago. What do you have to tell us about that, Peter? Well, it uh, started actually around February or so, and it didn't get a lot of spread, but it had to do with the fact that in the area where it started, there happened to be a military reservation not uh, a short distance away. And so, uh, and you know, it was World War One going on, and these soldiers were being trained, and then they were moving out to mix with other soldiers. And, of course, uh, you know, it, the whole thing got spread. But let me uh, take it from the beginning here, if I may. 2018 is notable as the 180th anniversary of Fulton County, but it's also, of course, the 100th anniversary of the great influenza pandemic that killed more people than both world wars put together. Starting in January 1918 and continuing worldwide for the next 15 months, the so-called Spanish influenza, which is now believed to have actually started on a couple of pig farms in Haskell County, Kansas, didn't decline before killing more than 50 million people, some in our own local counties. The purpose of this Discussion today isn't to repeat the story of this worldwide devastation, but simply to relate how it affected our own upstate world. And for that, we really only need to consult contemporary newspaper articles preserved. In my case, I work with the morgue in the Leader Herald's office and a few other sources. The uh, flu arrived here, meeting in the Fulton Montgomery County uh, upstate Schenectady uh, County area, uh, in uh, very, very late September and early October. The October 5th, 1918 Morning Herald, for example, gives an accounting of the influence's local progress, and there are two articles that were on the front page. Uh, one was entitled, uh, Spanish Influenza Still Continues Its Rapid Spread. And this was relating the influenza's international progress around the world. But the other article was of greater importance, and that was, head, that was headlined, Sweeping Orders by City Health Officer. It informed the nervous readers, and I quote, Theaters and all places of amusement are closed, while ban is placed on all public gatherings. Churches will be closed entirely on Sunday. Some local physicians are of the opinion the epidemic won't be stamped out until all factories and shops are also closed. Gloversville's harried health officer at the time was a Dr. A.L. Johnson. The previous Thursday, the Herald related, Dr. Johnson was given complete authority by the Board of Health to do everything he could to contain the epidemic. People were dying. The deadly influenza citizens had read about for months 
was no longer somewhere else. It was here. Dr. Johnson's sweeping orders closed all schools, churches, movie theaters, dance halls, skating rinks, and all other places where people congregate in large numbers. But Johnson's measures apparently should have been taken sooner. In a matter of only three weeks in late September and early October, Gloversville experienced over 1,500 cases, and the number was growing daily. And incidentally, Bob, while I was researching this, I looked through the general uh, daily editions of the paper during that mm-hmm. time period, and there were, there were three to five people dying every day. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, it was certainly a serious thing. The Morning Herald expressed criticism of city government for not empowering Johnson sooner. It editorialized much more towards stamping out the disease could have been accomplished had the Board of Health acted earlier. The action of Health Officer Johnson is the only effective way to check further spread of the germ. But to have accomplished the greater good, it should have been taken several days ago. Even at that, local ministers first balked at closing churches, and factory owners flatly refused to close up any shops or factories, even for a few days. A week later, on October 12th, the Herald ran another headline, which simply stated, The situation is unchanged. By this date, beleaguered Dr. Johnson had added virtually every remaining type of public venue to his don't-go-there list. And the statistics were grim. And I quote, new cases are reported daily and there are deaths daily. In the midst of this chaos, the Herald expressed what seems now to be a rather naive viewpoint on the situation. I think it was probably trying to soothe the public's uh, nerves. Uh, It said, if everyone just takes safe courses to keep from catching, turning the page, catching the influenza, or takes the precaution to call a physician as soon as they have taken to their beds, the epidemic will be adequately checked. And I guess my answer to that was, that's easy for them to say. (laughs) I would say. Right. Oddly, while Gloversville was battling well over 1,500 cases on October 5th and experiencing a death rate averaging three victims per day, Amsterdam, on the same day, with a higher population, reported only 50 cases, and its own health officer, Dr. Hicks, refused to close any public places unless the city was visited by the disease in full force. Before the influenza finally subsided in Amsterdam in late November, the Carpet City experienced fewer than 500 cases and a very small number of deaths compared to Gloversville. On October 8th, Hicks solicited, and I quote, volunteers to work with the Department of Health fighting the epidemic threatening the city. Men and women, young and old, plus automobiles, are needed. Once they were sick, people called their doctors and prayed for relief, but nothing helped beyond taking to bed, waiting it out, and hoping one's constitution was strong enough to outlast the ravenous buck. Nevertheless, (laughs) Nevertheless, fast-buck opportunists offered various medications supposed to help, unless, of course, they didn't. One hot seller was a pill called Fruitatives, made by the Fruitative Limited Company of Ogdensburg. 
<laughs> company was at least honest enough to admit it is not a germ killer. It is a bodybuilder, a strength maker, a blood purifier, a power in protection against ravages of disease, available at your local druggist for only 50 cents a box. Now, who knows what was in that stuff, you know? Who knows? With or without swallowing fruitatives, new cases gradually diminished. By early November, schools restarted, churches and businesses reopened, and all three of our bi-county cities began reestablishing normal existences. Although influenza deaths had broken spirits and emptied chairs at family tables, People's attention rapidly returned to other problems, the problems of food rationing, coal shortages, and more deaths caused by involvement in World War One. Mm. Well, it's, go, ahead. go ahead. I'm sorry. I was been uh, and want to interrupt your train of thought uh, or discourse. Um, as you know, you and I discussed this briefly. I've written about the influenza in Amsterdam and Montgomery County, and the uh, historic Amsterdam League folks have some stuff on it now in connection with their 1918 calendar. My understanding always was that Dr. Hicks did close uh, some uh, churches and so forth eventually, although St. Mary's Church remained open. And, and also one of the Amsterdam's legs up, if you will, or whatever it is, and I don't know, maybe this was true to some extent in Johnstown Gloversville, but Amsterdam had hospitals to treat people by then. Um, you know, St. Mary's, the city hospital, and I guess they even started a, a clinic in the east end of the city. But uh, for some reason, as you say, there were fewer uh, deaths in Amsterdam, although looking at some of the newspapers, the, the, you know, the Amsterdam Recorder, it was so, you know, you, at a certain point, like October, November of 1918, you'd look at uh, a list of obituaries. You know, this one died of the right. flu, that one died of the flu. And the other thing was they tended to be young people dying of the flu. Yes, I understand that affected people generally in, in that age bracket up to about 35 or 40. And, and most older people didn't actually catch the thing. I mm. can't begin to tell you why, of course. No, me either. Uh, and, well, anyway... Maybe we can fly from the flu uh, to uh, ask you about another one of your stories or, uh, about jail escapes in Fulton County. Well, we can talk about that. I just want to add one more thing about the flu, though, and that was that uh, many years ago I found a rolled-up scroll in the bottom of an old piece of furniture in my grandmother's house, and it was a certificate of appreciation awarded to her, signed by Governor Smith in recognition for serving as one of those Amsterdam influenza-fighting volunteers. <laughs> ah, very good. Isn't that something? That is something. Okay, so. now let's turn to, let's see if, oh, here we are. Yeah, there is, uh, I, you know, sometimes you write these things and you, you start, you're working on something else and then you see something and it says, hey, this is interesting too. And this was one of those cases where, I got into the jail escapee business because it was happening so frequently. <laughs> okay, uh, This was entitled, Some Escapees Never Returned. While some forward-looking local criminals of all times regularly gained a winter of free heat, food, and lodging in our old Fulton County Jail by committing some minor malfeasance to be rewarded by a sentence of several months' incarceration, 
It was not so for Samuel Coadney, Coadney, who took an unapproved permanently from jail in December of 1909. Perhaps in Coadney's case, it wasn't so much a matter of dissatisfaction with our accommodations as it was the unpleasant realization that he was soon to be whisked away, far from familiar Johnstown friends and neighbors, to the much less hospitable penitentiary at Danamora, there to begin three years' unpleasant residence for stealing a lady's handbag. But Colney didn't abscond alone. With him went a fellow inmate, Edward Doherty. Doherty, however, quickly returned, claiming that Coadney forced him to go at gunpoint. Coadney, as Doherty put it, not only had a hacksaw, but also had somehow obtained a revolver. The Fulton County Republican informed readers, according to the best information, the escape was made by filing an iron bar from one of the windows and dropping to the ground. Sheriff McCall was in Gloversville, but as soon as he was notified, he took measures to have the men apprehended. Well and good, but Samuel Coadney seems to have kept one step ahead of Sheriff McCall's measures all along the way, even though his escape was almost immediately reported by a third inmate, James Tripp. Then amidst the hustle and bustle of sheriff's deputies and Johnstown police officers scouring Johnstown for the two absentees, Ed Doherty suddenly reappeared at the jail, claiming that he had had no choice but to live with Coadney because Coadney used his gun and forced him to go. Whether or not Doherty's return was greeted with joy by a grateful jailer is not recorded, but he stuck to his story about not intending to escape. This tale, however, was never believed by authorities. Quote, Doherty says it is not true that he left Coadney that he let Coadney out of his cell, but that Coadney somehow unlocked the doors from the inside. The lock is a spring lock and could be picked without much difficulty. Doherty claims Coadney carried a revolver, but had no idea where he got it from. Whether than immediately hot-footing it from Johnstown, according to Doherty, the brash Mr. Coadney first took him over to Coadney's nearby home, to secure his overcoat and some money, during which visit Doherty managed to escape him and promptly returned to his jailhouse home. Was Doherty telling the truth, or had he simply lost heart in the venture? He was, after all, and I quote, considered one of the trustiest men, accorded many privileges, and lately had been doing some painting around the jail. Who could argue with that? Unfortunately, the district attorney could and did later on. Once properly attired in his overcoat, a light-colored suit, and with a total of about $35 traveling money, according to Doherty, Samuel Coadney bid Johnstown goodbye, and in spite of the fact that Sheriff McCall notified all the neighboring towns and cities and saw that all the cars, meaning trolley cars, were watched, in some manner, he successfully flew the coop. As is often the case, innocence left behind suffered. The Republican noted, Coadney has a wife and family whose condition is to invite sympathy and assistance. Unless something is done, there will be much suffering. And unfortunately, this was just a week or so before Christmas. 
No doubt part of Sheriff McCall and District Attorney Talbot's angst and embarrassment over the fact of this escape was that this was the second escape from the Fulton County Jail within six months. The first escape also resulted from enthusiastic application of the inmate's best friend, the dependable hacksaw. Clearly someone wasn't conducting effective prisoner searches. In the Republican article's headline, another delivery at the jail in Johnstown intentionally implied maybe jail personnel were not quite as smart as some of their guests. <laughs> we're talking with Peter Betts, who writes history columns for the Leader Herald newspaper. This is the Historian's Podcast. We'll be back in uh, just a moment. do want to mention to you that our 2018 fund drive is underway to help support the Historian's Podcast, paying for production expenses. Our uh, GoFundMe address this year is GoFundMe.com forward slash historians 2018 we also gladly accept uh, donations in the mail you can uh, write out a check to me bob cudmore and uh, send it to 125 horseman drive scotia new york 12302 and thank you very much now i know peter betts you probably think i'm sort of hustling you along but the the time is marching on and uh since we discussed this uh, list of topics one of them that really appealed to me, I didn't know anything about it, uh, was the story of Knox and his airship. Uh, tell us about Knox and the airship. All right. Uh, and you give me two minutes warning near the end, okay? Okay. Uh, on May 10, 1905, the Syracuse Post Standard read an article about Charles B. Knox of Johnstown's Knox Gelatin Company announcing he'd hired Syracuse native George T. Tomlinson to design and run an airship at the Portland Exhibition. Now, we're not talking about an airplane. We're talking about what you and I would think of as a dirigible or blimp. Mm -hmm. Okay? That's what they called airships in those days. Although references to the Knox Gelatin Company more frequently detail the life of Mrs. Rose Knox, Charles' widow, Charles himself built a successful business and at this point in time, he was quite willing to spend some money to enjoy himself. He already had a well-respected stable of racehorses, owned the first automobile in Johnstown, was allegedly the first man to drive an automobile across the entire state, and now in the spring of 1905, he was looking forward to a new challenge, which he found in financing his own airship. If he needed to, he could also justify this new extravagance to Mrs. Knox because he named the airship Gelatin. And if you see pictures of it, most of the time it has the word gelatin on both sides of it. Mm. Knox pro probably selected aeronaut, as they were called, Tomlinson, to design the craft because of his flying record. On August 27, 1904, Tomlinson had established a world airship endurance record of 22 hours 31 minutes airborne at the St. Louis Fair. At, on June 20th, the Fulton County Republican informed readers, Mr. Knox's machine is being built by inventor Tomlinson and will be completed about July 1st. It will go directly to Oregon for the airship races. Now, this must have certainly have cost some money, but let's face it, Knox had it. Uh, the Knox machine 
made 21 ascensions at the 1905 Lewis and Clark Portland, Oregon Exposition. What was special about the gelatin was that Tomlinson designed a special steering system, which apparently, from what, what we can judge from the various articles, was superior to other methods of, steer, of steering airships at the time. Of its success at Portland, the September 1905 Republican glowed, Gelatin is a great success. Knox airship sails like a bird. <laughs> it, and it continued flying high during 1906, as is attested to by various photographs showing it at various exhibitions around the country. On July 8, 1906, Syracuse Herald stated, Knox's gelatin airship made a flight of 200 feet and landed one quarter of a mile from where it started, being in the air 11 minutes. The balloon is of the conical shape, uh, having a capacity of 11,000 cubic feet of hydrogen gas. And let's see, apparently Mr. Knox thought if one airship was good, two were better. On July 24th that year, uh, Kanjahari Courier informed readers that uh, he had another man in Kanjahari, Mr. Willis Bullock, building a second ship. And uh, let's see here. There were really only two practical uses for gas-filled airships. Exhibit them at public venues as an advertising tool or race them against other airships. At first, uh, Knox and some other people with these things thought it would be great to make some money by charging admission to see the thing go up in the air. But that pretty much didn't uh, accomplish much because most people were smart enough to know that all they had to do was stand there outside <laughs> and they would see the thing go up in the air anyway. That's right. Right? Uh, anyway, it says on the July 24, 1906, Kanji Harry Courier said, Mr. Knox is a square, generous man. $500, which was the money received for the exhibitions at Kanji Harry, has been returned to that village with a suggestion by Mr. Knox <coughs> that it should be expended for a fire alarm system for the village. Now, Knox had another idea, and this was a bit strange. Uh, but, you know, he was a forward-thinking man. And uh, the second larger ship was to be something completely revolutionary. And it enters the realm of what was he thinking about. Knox described this as, quote, a new battleship of the future, Sky Navy. In construction of this sky battleship, Mr. Knox has the latest thing in airships, which promises to revolutionize modern warfare. doesn't say how. One no. wonders if, if Mr. Knox intended mounting cannon on it to shoot down enemy airships or hoped to convince the government of its potential for bombing battlefields from on high. But if so, if so he... Why did he not also consider the fact that it would have made a very swell target? Yes, it would. <laughs> Although, didn't they, the Germans in particular, use dirigibles in World War One? Uh, the Germans and and the Americans, uh, British, I think, not Americans. Uh, they used them, but they used them mainly for observation, so they could, hmm. you know, uh, find out where the other troops. They did that in the Civil War, actually, with the gas balloons. Yeah. Well, one thing I was thinking when you were talking about the gelatin, to average, you know, so before there was a Goodyear blimp, there was a gelatin blimp, you know, for Knox gelatin. Definitely there was. 
And as far as what might have become of this the Sky Battleship is concerned, uh, Knox died very suddenly uh, in 1908. He was only 53 years old. And uh, so I, I hate to <laughs> close it this way by saying it, but unfortunately his high-flying aerial battleship never got off the ground. That's too bad. But as you say, Rose Knox uh, went on to run the company and become very famous and uh, well thought of in the Johnstown Gloversville area. Oh, absolutely. Well, she was always well thought of. She was doing many good things even before 1900. Yeah. Well, uh, Peter, we're, we're down to like four minutes, but I think that we, we might end up uh, using that to talk about your odd bits that you have before the podcast is over. Well, there's one I think is particularly amusing, and as, as you, uh, both you and I, uh, had some uh, association with you, Donlin. Remember you? Yes. Uh, well, I, actually, I don't don't remember him as much as I've uh, read read his stuff, and uh, you know, been in touch more with his relatives. Uh, well, uh, I I did know him slightly near the end of his life. Uh, this is from his column, and this is an interesting thing. There is an old building, we won't go into details on that, called Danascara Place between Tribesville and Fonda. And at that time, and this was May 11th, 1944, in Hughes' column, he entered this little article, which is kind of a piggish gem. Uh, at Danascara Place, there was quite a farm, okay? Now, this is what Don had to say. Between 1943, due to expected rationing of various meat products, Howard DeGraff of Danisgara Farms decided to raise pigs. District Attorney Charles Tracy, during a conversation, was promised a ham. Time passed. Tracy recently reminded DeGraff that he had a ham coming. This is about a year later. Hmm. Yesterday, Tracy was informed by telephone that his ham was on the way. Thus, a pig, 10 years Ten weeks old was delivered to Mr. Tracy's downtown office by a taxi driver. Compliments of Mr. DeGraff, harnessed after the manner of a dog and held by a leash. It was temporarily placed in a storeroom while business continued, but it didn't take kindly to the location, uttering porcine expostulations and reducing the storeroom's contents to less than useful conditions. <laughs> the pig has since been consigned to the farm of a friend. Right. That, that one almost makes me squeal, uh, Peter. <laughs> but, <laughs> sorry, Very I'm sorry. But uh, maybe we should uh, say a bit more about, about Hugh Donlin. He was uh, an, an Amsterdam man, and for the longest time, or a long time, he was a reporter and a columnist for the Amsterdam Recorder, and wrote several uh, books. Uh, he's best known for his 1980 uh, history of Amsterdam called Annals of a, of a Mill Town. And that column you're referring to, it really is quite um, interesting. It was called Main Street, I believe. And he started it after he was at the newspaper for only a, a year or two and often had kind of funny bits in it, right? Oh, yes. And he, he knew everything that was going on down Downtown people talked to him. He talked to them, and uh, uh, he was a very gregarious man and an excellent writer. 
one of the the themes he would use, like one of his headlines was uh, things that my secretary would have jotted down if I had a secretary, right? Because <laughs> I'm sure, knowing the media business, he had no secretary. He, in fact, he did a tremendous amount of work. I don't remember Bob going making that point with me because during World War II, he was too old to serve, but a lot of the reporters went off to war, and so he was just uh, working double, triple duty to keep the, the newspaper going. Peter, we're just about out of time. Always a, a pleasure having you with us. Uh, if you have, have 10 seconds, you would, would like to do something to say goodbye to our podcast listeners. Well, all right, here we go. Goodbye, podcast listeners. That sounds pretty good to me. Peter Betts has been our guest on the Historian Podcast. He writes a column every other week for the Leader Herald newspaper in Gloversville about Fulton County history. This has been the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cutmore.